Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Another one of the big names we're waiting for to get into the presidential race for 2020 is Beto O'Rourke. He has officially announced his bid for the presidency. There's been months and months of speculation as to whether he would jump in and what he has to offer. As a former congressman from El Paso, he's uniquely positioned to talk about the border and make it one of his top priorities. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us to talk about what Beto O'Rourke is all about. One thing that's interesting about Beto O'Rourke is that he's actually one of the more moderate candidates that we've seen throw their name into the ring recently. He, While he's definitely a Democrat, he's a little bit less progressive than some of the other candidates that we've seen. We've seen a lot of the 2020 candidates fully embrace the Green New Deal and take really hardline approaches to immigration. And Beto, while he does say that climate change is going to be an important part of his campaign, an important issue that he would address as president, he has not fully endorsed the Green New Deal. And he's just a little bit less to the extreme left than we've seen a lot of the popular candidates who who we've been talking about so far. And of course, he's just become this media darling, in a sense, is the word that a lot of people use to describe him. Since running for Senate, he has really attracted a lot of media attention and a lot of nationwide attention, which is something that's very difficult to gain, especially as someone who no one had heard of just a couple years ago. His resume is a little thin. He's a, has some success as a businessman. He only served three terms in Congress, but everybody just kind of fell in love with him during that race against Ted Cruz. And everybody's looking to him to be kind of that next big star. Obviously, we went through it with President Obama, also kind of a thin resume, but he just had this uh, air about him and people really wanted him to to win. And I feel it's kind of the same thing with Beto O'Rourke. But there was one interesting thing. You were talking about how he could be more of a moderate. 538.com did an analysis of votes that he's done, and they said that he voted 30% of the time in line with President Trump. So that's kind of an interesting number. As you said, with the primaries, things like that, the candidates usually always tend to be very far to the left or on the Republican side, very far to the right. The general election, everybody moderates because you want to get all the people in the middle. So does he have this potential? Can he win people over in the middle? seems likely that he would be able to win more of the moderates and maybe pull a few, you know, Republican votes over to his side with the way that he has voted, how he's not so extreme to the left. But of course, the problem will be winning the primary where it's a Democratic base. And we've seen the Democrats move left over the past few years and even the past few months, just looking at the kind of policies that other 22 candidates are endorsing, like Medicare for all and the Green New Deal, as I mentioned, and issues around immigration and all these other issues. We've seen Democrats continually move to the left. And so the big question with Beto is maybe he is the best candidate to go up against Trump in a general election, but can he win the primary? is still the question. The vast majority of these candidates have been building on on the far left movement. People like AOC and other people who have kind of been pushing the party to the left. We've seen a lot of the 2020 candidates sign on to that agenda, but very few, maybe Klobuchar is one of the other moderates and now Beto 
have kind of tried to find a middle ground. So I think it's a really interesting dynamic to be watching as we head toward 2020 and see how that all shakes out. It seems like his big issue will be the border wall. He is in prime position. He's from El Paso, Texas, a border town. He's already positioned himself in complete opposition to the wall and you know all the immigration stances that President Trump has taken. So it seems like he's in a key position to argue that point, at least. He's been a very vocal critic of the border wall that Trump has endorsed. And he has also said that the U.S. should not criminalize anyone who requests asylum between ports of entry. And so he's definitely taken a very opposite approach to immigration than the president. That's one aspect where we've seen him differ quite substantially from Trump. And of course, significant given the fact that he's a representative from Texas, a border state. And I think that adds to the fact that this would would probably be another big issue for his campaign, a big issue that he would run on. And it's an issue that is increasingly taking a higher spot on the list of issues that voters care about. How has the president responded so far? He had kind of a funny reaction to Beto O'Rourke's uh, announcement video. Yeah, of course. The, the one thing that Trump was most concerned about with Beto was the way that he was using his hands in the video where he announced that he would be officially running. It was something that if you were following along on Twitter. A few people mentioned that it seemed a little bit unprofessional and a little bit wild with his hand gestures. He is but very course, excited. Was he was very excited. And it's something that Trump decided to talk about. He said, I've never seen hand movement. I watched him a little while this morning. I've never seen anything like it. So that was his takeaway. Moving on to just his campaign and campaign style. He said he's not going to accept money from any PACs, corporations, or special interest groups. I, I think a lot of uh, Democratic nominees are, are talking about that. But he also said he's not going to employ any consultants and he won't employ pollsters also. He's really taking a very different strategy when it comes to campaigning. And we saw this a little bit in his 2018 campaign. He is very much an off-the-cuff kind of candidate. He's even said himself that he doesn't necessarily prepare for a lot of the speeches that he's given, that he kind of goes with the flow and responds to questions that are being asked of him. And of course, a lot of this reflects something we're seeing nationwide and also specifically among Democrats is this growing distrust of institutions, of economic powerhouses and financial institutions and moving away from the money and politics murkiness of the political system in D.C. And so we're seeing that. And I think it's really interesting that we're seeing this trend because it's also something that in a way Trump ran on successfully, the drain the swamp mentality. I think there are two sides of the same coin, a similar issue. And we're seeing Beto also have this more casual, relaxed and seemingly more natural campaign style with, you know, Instagram lives and using social media to be the real candidate up front to voters and also moving away from the traditional institutions that have surrounded the campaign. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We had some big death penalty news this past week. California Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order granting temporary reprieves to all 737 inmates on California's death row. It's the largest in the nation. The order is also going to close the execution chamber at San Quentin State Prison. For more on this, we spoke to Phil Willon. He's a reporter at the LA Times to discuss the governor's decision to shut down the death penalty, regardless of the voters' decision to keep it. They voted twice in the past few years to keep the death penalty specifically. Well, Newsom says he has the moral authority to do this, and as well as the legal authority to do this. He's been a longtime opponent to the death penalty for decades. 
He endorsed measures to abolish the death penalty twice in the past six years. And what brought this to a head, he said, was the fact that the state's new lethal injection protocol, basically the cocktail that will be used to put people to death, is still being devised, and he has to approve it within the next month or so, or at least sign off on it. And he said that prospect kind of brought this issue, made it a real, very real issue to him and a more immediate issue. He didn't think that he would have to act as soon as he did, he says. But since this was coming up, he decided something had to be done. And that was intensified by the fact that there are 25 people on death row now who have exhausted all of their appeals and who would be first in line for the death chamber. What is uh, going on with the lethal injection protocol? Is it an issue of what drugs we're using? Because I know a lot of states are going through that problem. They can't find the right mix. There's drug makers that are objecting to the use of their drugs into these lethal injection protocols. Is that the same with our state? It is and it isn't. I mean, there was a legal challenge to the lethal injection method, which had the, the previous one, which had three different drugs. The Department of Corrections has since changed that under the direction of the courts to one drug. I guess they have an option of one or two drugs. But they basically cleared, at least from the court's point of view, constitutional muster to proceed. And so Newsom himself told me that he expected the legal challenge to lethal injection to be resolved during his term in office. It may not have been this month or this year or even this four-year term, but he expected it to be resolved while he was governor. Other people I've talked to as well, including death penalty proponents and opponents, agreed with that. So this was something that was definitely going to land on his desk. Uh, we, we, the California, in essence, has had a moratorium since 2006 when its method of execution was tossed out by the courts and has kind of been locked in this legal battle ever since. But that eventually was going to be resolved, and it looked like that was going to happen in, in the years and ahead. More people have died on death row by natural causes or suicide than have been put to death by the state. You mentioned that uh, the California voters weighed in two times in the last six years on statewide ballot measures to repeal the death penalty, and they said, we don't want to get rid of it. They even voted in favor of fast-tracking the appeals process. What has Gavin Newsom said with regards to that? At his press conference, when he announced his executive order, he got really peppered by reporters about that. I mean, how could you defy the will of the people of California? He said that the California voters knew what they were getting when they elected him, and he was elected overwhelmingly in November, and that he's been a longtime opponent of the death penalty. We'll see if people believe that. I know a lot of Republicans especially have been criticizing him, as well as the groups that favor the death penalty in the state and put the ballot measure on to accelerate appeals process in capital cases. But he said that he has a constitutional authority to do this, which he does, to grant reprieves. One interesting thing to note about that, however, is reprieves are temporary. So when Newsom leaves office, the reprieve expires. So that could be, you know, four years, that could be eight years from now. But when he leaves office, the next governor will have to decide this all over again. And is it something where the next governor would have to go through the whole process and sign another executive order? I mean, it just effectively cancel when he's out? Yes. Yeah, that would happen. I mean, in the, a lot can happen in the meantime. There could be a member of the Assembly is proposing a new constitutional amendment to abolish the death penalty, which could be on the ballot in 2020. Newsom has the ability to commute sentences, although that's, that's a limited ability. Anyone who on death row who's been convicted of two or more felonies, if he commutes their sentence to, let's say, life in prison, that has to be signed off by the California Supreme Court, which in recent months has seemed reluctant to do so, especially when Newsom's predecessor, Governor Brown, issued some commutations in December. You mentioned a lot of the backlash that Gavin Newsom is receiving so far. 
Michelle Hennessy, president of the Association of Deputy District Attorneys, is opposed to this. A lot of lawmakers, on the other hand, in the California legislature have been supportive of him. The president weighed in. He said that he is not happy with this, that the friends and families of the forgotten victims are not thrilled with this, and neither is he. It seems along party lines, kind of. The two ballot measures over the past six years that would have abolished the death penalty both lost. And that, that means, in reality, some Democrats and moderates voted against abolishing the death penalty. So it's not just a Republican issue versus a Democratic issue. You have different divides on the issue geographically. Law enforcement, of course, is many law enforcement groups were in favor of the death penalty and, and campaigned for it. But So it's, it's not as simple as this black and white and red versus blue. In the meantime, Newsom joins other governors like in uh, Oregon, Colorado, Pennsylvania, who've done the same thing, moratoriums on the executions. But the debate constantly swirls. And I know that the lethal injection protocol is always a big thing. It's the cocktail of drugs that we're using. That's what you know stops countless executions throughout the country right now. We have to remember, it looked like that was going to be resolved in California in the near future, that legal challenge. That may or may have not been the case. I mean, I'm sure there may have been other lawsuits filed, but the prospect of that being resolved was real, and uh, a lot of people believed that that may happen in the years ahead. And Newsom was right. If executions resumed, there would be a lot of people at the front of the line ready to head for that death chamber. Phil Willon, reporter for the LA Times based in Sacramento, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. One of the weirder stories we covered this past week was that of the human bone trade. Uh, what if you were in the market for a human skull or a full skeleton? Would you be surprised if I told you to check Instagram? The sale, purchase, and trade of most human bones in the U.S. is largely legal, and people are connecting on Instagram to find what they need. We spoke to Brian Sweetek. He's author of the new book, Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone to talk more about the human bone trade. Over the past couple of years, it's really shifted to Instagram. I mean, it used to be on other platforms that I'm sure uh, your listeners are familiar with, like eBay or on Etsy. And uh, you know, over time, those other places have closed down the sale of human remains. I think on eBay right now, you can only sell uh, human hair, and that's about it. But on Instagram, it's not as regulated because you know we're not actually, for the most part, selling stuff on Instagram. I mean, we're kind of selling ourselves through our you know social media media profiles, but it's a lot of, you know, images and someone says, you know, send me a direct message or you can go to my website here and buy the, you know, advertising for bones or human remains that they may have for sale. And if you know the right hashtags to follow, you can find all kinds of different, you know, trinkets or curios or other things, but really they're all the stuff that looks like it's set for your mantelpiece or to complete your goth wardrobe. They're the remains of people. Right. From your book, you mentioned that bone gathering has become a subculture status symbol. There was a study that a couple of archaeologists did of you know tracking the bone trade specifically on social media, and I think the you know last number that they came up with for the years they looked at the study was about fifty-seven thousand dollars worth of sales of human remains, and that number just kept going up each year. It might be greater this year. I'm not sure there's statistics for that just yet. But this isn't just about Instagram either. There are plenty of you know websites and natural history stores that sell skeletons and other human remains, and there's quite a big market for this. There's a, you know, a, another journalist came up with the term for this, the red market, basically, you know, the sale of human blood, hair, body parts, you know, bones, all the stuff that extends to all sorts of different things. But skeletons in particular, I mean, this is a global trade. And for example, uh, medical students in India are often encouraged to go out and get a real human skeleton to study from rather than a uh, substitute or a cast. And this continues to fuel this market. Apparently, it is very legal to sell, purchase and trade 
human bones, most human bones at least. This is one of the questions between, you know, the difference between is it legal and is it ethical? It's legal in many aspects. There are some exceptions, for example, Native American remains or remains that are of forensic interest, so involved in a crime or some kind of criminal investigation. But the question is, you know, as beautiful as, as bones are, I certainly find them beautiful. But when it comes to people, the question is, did this person consent to this form of afterlife. So there's an emerging conversation about this, you know, the legality of it, you know, you can look that up based upon where you are, but is this ethical to do? Are we treating basically the remains of people as nothing more than objects, even though it might be legally above board? The question is, like, is this right to do? That's a very interesting point to this because you mentioned a shop called The Bone Room in California that uh, assures its buyers that it's perfectly legal to possess and sell human bones and whatnot. And then you can click around and, uh, you know, there's listings. So one of them is number 6043, India Mail. And uh, with a slightly damaged skull, that costs 1800 bucks. But the listing doesn't provide any information on who the person was, how the skull was obtained, details such as that. And then we're talking about Instagram and how the market has opened up there a little bit. People are using these tags, you know, trophy skulls and hashtag real bone, but they're really not telling you more about who that person could have been. It's straight up. This is a random skull. I might have cleaned it up. I might have done some artsy stuff to it, but there's no identifying markers about it. That's right. And you know, it's treating people or the remains of people as stuff. And I was talking to a friend of mine about this because she was interested in getting a human skull or human skeleton for her reference collection and using it to do some artwork with and asking me about the ethics of this. And at the end of our discussion, she said, you know, it's kind of funny. Like I put more thought into the treatment of the chickens that, you know, lay the eggs that I buy at the grocery store than I did about buying somebody's remains. And that's part of the culture about this is that, you know, we don't think about it. We depersonify these people and they just become an object. They become a thing. And I know for myself, I'm, I'm not okay with that. that. That would certainly make me shudder to, you know, as much as I might want to wind up in, you know, in a museum someday so people can learn from my bones. If I just wound up on somebody's mantelpiece or as an art project, I wouldn't love that. But, you know, at that point, I wouldn't have a say in it. So this ongoing conversation of what do we expect for, you know, after, after we pass away and, and the disposition of our remains and what, what is acceptable and do we owe anything to these people who have passed away that they should be returned or repatriated or buried. I think that's something that, you know, we have really yet to, to reckon with. What are the most common bones that you can find in some of these places? Is it skulls? I saw in your book, you mentioned, you know, fingers and a lot of times people would make necklaces out of them. What are the most common ones that are being sold? Skulls are really the ultimate status symbol for us because, I mean, skulls have the most personality. They're really, you know, the structure of our faces. But I think beyond that, it's usually the, some of the smaller bones of the skeleton, like a lot of hand and finger bones that you can use for smaller pieces of jewelry, like earrings or necklaces or, or, or things like that. Something like hip bones and stuff that are relatively large and, you know, they look kind of neat, but there's not as much interest in that. So I think it's really the skull is what a lot of people are interested in and a lot of the smaller bones of the skeleton that can be kind of strung along the other pieces of jewelry or artwork. The book is called Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone. What else do you talk about in that book? Well, it's really the natural and unnatural history of our skeletons. So not only how our skeletons came together in an evolutionary sense and biological sense, you know, what our bones are, are doing right now as they grow and change, but also you know, our relationship to bone, what we think they say about us and who we are and where, and where we came from. So the first half of the book is all about the origin, evolution, and biology of bone. And the second half is you know, cultural beliefs about bones, dealing with everything from the bone trade to ideas that fueled scientific racism and why those are wrong through, you want to become a fossil, how would you do that? What is the future of our bones? So, you know, sort of the birth of bones towards death and afterlife. Brian Sweetek, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's been great. Thank you. 
All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.